Romans 14. We are in week number five of a series called Unity and Diversity. Unity and Diversity. It's important that we remember as we spend our time here week after week that really this is one idea. It's not five ideas. It's not six or seven ideas or however long it takes us to get to the end of this section and concept. Rather, it's one idea that we are forced to take our time and break up to um, unpack and understand. The one idea begins in verse 1 of chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And it goes all the way to chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And everything in between is about one thing, unity among the brethren in the church, while diversity is Uh, championed, while it is expected, and while it is um, upheld. So there will be great diversity, there will be great distinction among the members of the body of Christ with whom we are in fellowship. And so we are in week five, we are examining the second principle related to unity and diversity, specifically as it relates to Christian liberty, and that is to build one another up without offending. And so let's read, beginning in verse 13, the second week that we'll be considering this principle, build one another up without offending. Beginning in verse 13, chapter 14, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is in and of itself unclean, right? Nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. This is the psychology that we talked about last week. For, verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That'll be interesting, right? So then, verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But... Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer. Um, Our Father, we do, we petition you now. We, We come with requests. We have spoken of your greatness and your glory. You are the sure and steady anchor of our souls. 
when sickness and unexpected turmoil, circumstance, when they blindside us, when grief causes us uh, to, to sort of stumble and fall, when we find ourselves on the highest of mountains in one moment or one day, down to the lowest of lows the next, you are the sure and steady anchor. You are that which is stable in a world of seemingly shifting sands. We've spoken of your greatness and your glory. We have adored you. We confess that we desperately need you for uh, our very best is but filthy rags. The very best good life we could possibly live falls way short of being worthy of being in your presence. We are in desperate need that you would wash us and make us clean so that we can be in your presence for you are holy and we are sinful. We confess this. We thank you for the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who makes communion with you possible. You love the world enough to shed your blood so that whoever might believe would not perish, but have life. And so we thank you. Now, Lord, having adored you and confessed our sin and need to you, having thanked you for the cross of our Lord and Savior, we do come to you with these requests. Lord, that you would help us to understand, make us able to grow, make us able to stand, make us able to live the Christian life in a broken world and in a world that is 2,000 years divorced from these ancient texts. Illuminate the wisdom of Scripture to us so that we can live rightly, build one another up, spread the gospel, and most importantly, do all things for your glory. Help us, for we need your help. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As we talk week after week about Christian liberty, that is, non-moral preferences exercised by Christians according to various convictions, as we speak about these things week after week, it can be tempting to think that this section of the Bible is about Christian liberty. It's not. This section of Romans is about unity. In fact, I summarized um, this portion in my email this week for you in the way that I felt was the most distilled that I could possibly make it. Ready for the quote? I'm going to quote me here. The goal is unity. Liberties can divide. Here's how to avoid that. Okay? And if you really wanted to put a banner over chapter 14 and 15 through verse 13, that's it. The goal is unity. The freedom we have in Christ to work out our salvation, to live and breathe in a world 
that is full of sin and regulation and past and history, the freedom that we have to find that balance on things that are not moral issues, remember, can threaten the unity of the church. The the exercise of Christian liberty can divide. And look, friends, it does. It divides. How many different denominations are there, right? Let's even say, how many different faithful denominations are there? You'd say, well, not many. Well, it's getting to be seemingly a small list, right? But, But no, there's... There are several faithful denominations, and yet one calls themselves, you know, Presbyterian, one calls themselves Methodist, one calls themselves Baptist, one calls themselves non-denominational, right? Then there are hosts of folks who are not part of any of those, they're part of something else, and, and they're in a denominational affiliation with Christianity that, that isn't being faithful, but they themselves wish to be faithful to the text of Scripture, but they're in, they're in an environment and in a sect that has divided itself from, let's say, us over non-moral issues that they have made into moral diktats and applied them onto the people of God. My entire life growing up in the Baptist church, I have heard jokes about like, what did the Presbyterian say to the Methodist at the bar, right? Like that kind of stuff. And on one hand, it's kind of funny, you know. I was recently at a concert with my friend, my my family, and the uh, the performer Stephen Curtis Chapman he made a Baptist joke about dancing or something like that, you know. And my kids they didn't get the joke. They didn't get the joke because we don't promote that type of division in our household. We don't speak ill of the various denominations. We don't poke fun and. But you know who, who did get the joke? Like almost everybody in the room. Why? Because everybody in the room was familiar with the genuine division of otherwise faithful believers in Christ. Unity is the goal. Liberties can divide. Paul says, here's how to avoid the division. We've all experienced the division. We're experiencing it right now. We have to put labels on the groupings of Christians together. We are Southern Baptists. I'm not talking to you, Siri. We have to put the labels. We've got to know what we're affiliated with and what we're affiliated not with. We all understand the division. We can drive. I, I was driving from, dropping my girls off to babysit for one of our church members. And from their house to this church, it's, it's like a 10-minute drive. It's not far. I counted. There were like 11 different churches. The free will this, the you know, Methodist that, the good news this. The... And my first thought was, man, they must really love our church <laughs> because it would be a lot more convenient to go to that one, you know? And then I was grieved. Why? Because unity is the goal Liberties can divide. Paul says, here's how to avoid the division. And friends, we've not listened to him. 
the church has not listened to Paul when he said, here's how to avoid division. We've instead like bolted ourselves down to our preferences and developed whole creeds and statements about our preferences and how our preferences are the proper preferences and we bolt ourselves into our division and in doing so we essentially punt two chapters of the greatest book in the New Testament out the window. We have failed at this grossly. Okay? Now, uh, Hillcrest Baptist Church in the little northwest corner of Charlotte in 2023, uh, we can't we can't fix that, right? But we can make sure we don't continue it and promote it right here, right? So first, let's grieve the fact that the church has failed grossly in this, okay? Secondly, let's commit to not further division in our midst through the exercise of non-moral preferences. That's where we're at, friends. Okay, that's where we are in the text of Scripture. When Paul begins this chapter saying, therefore, or excuse me, when he begins verse 13, this section saying, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another, uh, he's speaking to both the weak and the strong believer. Okay, the weak believer has many hang-ups from a former way of life. The weak believer has many restrictions on non-moral issues, be it music or entertainment or sports or how you spend your time on Sundays. The weak believer is very restricted by his conscience, by his past. Can't enjoy certain music because it's too familiar to my old way of life. I can't enjoy certain foods and drinks because they bring me into a a state of mind that's too familiar to my old sinful past. I have, to, I have to hem myself way in because my conscience convicts me I can enjoy these things. I believe you when you say they're acceptable, but I can't. They're not acceptable for me. That is a weakness. It's not an insult. It's reality. We all come from different places. The strong which the, uh, these terms feel like one is better than the other. It's a simple matter of objective observation. The strong, Paul says, are those who can en enjoy the liberties that they have in Christ without conviction, without associating them with something evil, without indulging in them to a point of sin, like alcohol to the point of drunkenness, food to the point of gluttony, you see? These are the strong. These, who, these are those who understand that it is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not the result of works so that no one may boast. I can neither work my way closer to or farther away from the saving grace of God. It is a gift. The thief on the cross who believed for an hour will enjoy the same benefits of those who walked with Christ and devoted their whole lives to him for 80 and 90 and hundreds of years. It is not by works, it is a free gift. And the, the strong believer knows this and has reconciled this with all of these non-moral preferences. 
He chooses what to enjoy and what to abstain from, not on the basis of a conscience that condemns, but simply on the basis of what he prefers. I'm going to steer clear of that, but not because, not because it wrecks me. I just don't need it. I don't need it, don't enjoy it. Right? But when Paul opens this section, he's talking to both sides of this coin. Okay? The weak who are constrained by their conscience, you cannot cast judgment on the strong who are enjoying and indulging. Calling into question their salvation. How could you possibly do that? It's too closely affiliated with something else. How can you listen to that? How can you go to that? How can you drink that? How can you, right? I mean, you, you could take something like entertainment. Like, how could you possibly go to, to Disney World and spend your money at Disney World with all of the, the amoral, immoral things that they use those funds to promote? Right? You might have a conviction about that. So you don't have Disney Plus. You don't go to Disney. You're not going to spend your money there. Right? Why give them money to then use your money to promote evil. If that's where you're at, good. I applaud that. Right? And if you have a Disney trip coming up and you're going to go take your three-year-old to like experience the magic, right? the immersive environment, okay, go have fun. You see what I'm saying? But what we can't do is that those who have a conviction that say, I can't, I can't give my money to then look at the one who has a trip planned, who just wants to take their three-year-old to just experience the magic and go, how dare you not live up to my standards? Because is whether or not we go to Disney World a matter of salvation? It's not, is it? But when we do that, we make it a matter of salvation. We say, your Christianity must not be genuine or else you would live by my convictions. So this is the restrictive and this is the free. So Paul says, stop doing that. Meanwhile, also the free, stop looking at your other brother who's more restrictive and say, why don't you get off my case? This guy. Can you believe this guy? You know what? Maybe they should just go find some other church where they're, you know, a little more buttoned up and go, you know, fellowship with them. R.C. Sproul says it like this, calling, calling that kind of a demeanor towards each other hatred. He says, if I hate someone who is in Christ, I'm not only sinning against that person, I'm sinning against Christ himself. But friends, whether or not you spend money on Disney is just one of a, we did a list of like 10 things last week, Remember? From dancing to alcohol, tobacco, entertainment, on and on and on. There's, there's, a, any, there's a litany of ways that we can get into trouble with this. But what it breeds is hatred. We despise each other. One condemns and questions the salvation of the other. The other wishes the other would just go away. And we say, hey, come to my church. We love each other sometimes. And if you come, we'll love you too sometimes. <laughs> so that's Paul. He's talking to both sides of the coin here. However, 
when it turns essentially to verse 14, he's almost exclusively addressing the strong for the rest of the section through verse 13 of chapter 15. Everyone is called to task for the condemning or the despising and the questioning on matters of moral, non-moral issues. But then Paul says, okay, now you who believe yourselves to be strong, mature in the faith, experienced in the faith, you understand the, the delicate balance of Christian liberty. You can clearly distinguish that which is evil from that which is permissible. You can enjoy these things with a clear conscience. You are not grossly, overtly hemmed in. Now you, I'm going to talk to you for a while. James Montgomery Boyce says it like this. The strong believer has more latitude in these matters and can accommodate the weaker brother, while the weaker brother cannot accommodate the strong. And so Paul says, I'm talking to you. You who have the ability to accommodate the weaker the more restrictive, the hung up, the younger. You can accommodate them, they can't accommodate you. So let's talk. Let's talk about how we build one another up without offending, specifically you who are strong. And so if you're taking notes, number one, this morning we're going to talk about this burden. Okay? The burden is build up, don't tear down. Okay? It is essentially like the, the heavy backpack, you know, like of the, of the military man, right? The big, those big heavy packs. They strap them on. It is their duty to carry. The burden that falls on the stronger is build up and don't tear down. Now, there's three aspects to this. I want to run through them quickly because we're running out of time in a hurry and we want to sing a bunch more. So the first burden that is placed on you is found in verse 13. Do not cause another to stumble. Verse 13, let, therefore let, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. What is that doing? That's taking the responsibility on yourself in matters of Christian liberty to promote unity. That's the first aspect of this burden. You take the onus on yourself. What is this? This is the exercise of liberty in the view of a weak brother. This is what causes someone to stumble. This is you know what they struggle with and yet you flaunt it anyway. The question was offered to me after the service last week. How can we know what someone else might struggle with though? I mean, how could I possibly know what every person in the world might, that Christian might, that Christian might, that Christian might. So how do, I, how do I know what might cause them to stumble so that I can avoid it? So I can avoid not flaunting it in front of them. And the question was posited in good faith. They were just trying to make some sense of the practical application of this in accommodating a weaker sibling in the faith. The answer comes in the context of the original authorship. Okay, the first rule of biblical interpretation. The original author, the original recipient, and the original author's intent. Okay, what 
was the author saying and who was he saying it to? That's number one. If you skip number one, you're liable to come to all kinds of flawed conclusions in the text of Scripture. Who was the original author? What was he saying? What did he mean? And who was he talking to? So when we break that down for a moment, we've got to recognize Paul wrote to a church family like this, a church family in Rome. This church family knew one another. The situation where cars and buses take you all over the city to the various churches passing 11 to get to this one was never in the mind of the apostle when he wrote this. The assumption Paul makes when he addresses the church family is that the family knows each other the way we know each other. So who are we to seek to build up and not tear down? Well, it's those who we know and are in Christian fellowship with. I am not compelling you to spend your entire life wondering whether or not some random Christian will be offended by the the nature of your window tint or what kind of meal you order at the restaurant. In fact, again, James Montgomery Boyce has helpful input on this. He says, do the strong in faith have to forego anything about which some weaker believer might object? That's the question, right? It's very sophisticated, but it's like, what am I supposed to, how am I supposed to know what's going on? Right, this is him saying it in like precise language, right? I don't know what everybody's going Yeah, do the strong in faith have to forego anything about which some weaker believer might object? And he goes on, in a world with so much variety, there is hardly anything you or I might do that will not be objected to by some believer. Can I get an amen? Okay. Whew, man, I tell you what, you know? Moreover, there are believers on both sides of most issues. Again, We're talking about non-moral preferences, okay? Take clear clear matters of moral ethic, Christian ethic, absolutes, and set them aside. We're talking about things that are permissible in fellowship with Christ. Continuing, if we are to listen to what all these other Christians have to say and try to live by their standards, we would either fall into a new legalism or go crazy trying to balance the thousands of conflicting claims on our behavior, okay? Can we all just say thank you to James Montgomery Boyce? That's helpful, isn't it? That's how we would spend our lives, just wrecked with, I don't even know what to do. I can't say where, go, do, stand, sit. Because I don't know what might offend someone. Odds are everything's gonna offend someone, and we are certainly living in a culture where everyone's offended by everything, aren't they? And so the answer is that we must not drive ourselves crazy trying to figure out who might be offended by someone. Rather, we must go back to the original verse. Chapter 14, verse 1. It's the foundation. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. 
That is accept one another, welcome one another. Remember the meaning? It means to pull in close to yourself. It's the way Peter pulled Jesus aside when he said, don't be talking about getting crucified. The same word is used here, welcome one another, pull them in close to yourself. When we do that, when we meet each other and pull one another in close, we get to know one another. We learn about each other. We discover each other's strengths and weaknesses, particular sensibilities, and yes, perhaps what the other is hung up on unnecessarily, it's a non-moral preference, but they've made it into a moral issue. We learn this about them when we accept them, welcome them, pull them in close like a brother or a sister. However, he says, pull them in close, not to grill them about their preferences and then correct them. (laughs) He says, pull them in close to get to know them so that then you who are strong can be sensitive to their weaknesses. The second aspect of building one another up and tearing down beyond not causing another to, to stumble is verse 15, don't destroy your brother or grieve your brother. Let's read verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's strong language. The word that Paul uses there, destroy, is used in other places when it means eternal damnation. So he's using a pretty strong term here. What's Paul getting at? Well, this is, to do this, to destroy and to grieve in this manner is to know your brother struggles with something and in a selfish desire to enjoy what you want to enjoy, you push him and you say, come on, man, get over it. It's no big deal. Grow up. Enjoy the good things. But here's the problem. He can't. He's not there. One sip and he's off the wagon. Or you persuade him into coming to a movie, and the movie isn't immoral, but it portrays scenes, maybe from an old pattern of life, in a way that that now he feels guilty about watching it. I think of like the Jesus Revolution. Excellent film. Highly recommend it. It tells the story of the Jesus People Revolution, all the hippies getting saved out in Southern California back in the 60s and the 70s. The establishment of Calvary Chapel as an institution, and, and so on. Wonderful film. And you know what? It dramatically portrays the, the drug lifestyle from which hippies were saved out of. And you know what? It's kind of intense. There's a few parts in it that made me kind of cringe a little bit, like, ooh. It's almost glorifying the behavior in its portrayal. Now, it's not. It wasn't glorifying the behavior in its portrayal. It was simply showing this is what it was like They even seem to enjoy themselves. Later in the film, you read about, or you you see about how how they're, they're grieved by this now. This isn't truly fun. It seems fun, but it's not lasting joy. But in those moments of dramatic portrayal of taking the drugs and the scene out of which the hippies were drawn, it was powerful in an uncomfortable sort of way. And you know what? I would think that if someone was radically saved out of that environment, that that might really really get to them. 
they might even would be so, not offended, but bothered that they would get up and walk out in that scene. That's how accurately they sought to portray this and personally. It was was moving in a strange way. And so let's say you know someone has come out of that scene, you know they're sensitive to it, and you say, come see this movie with me, it's great, it's great, it's great. And now they run out of the theater, their conscience is so offended by having watched what seems to be the glorification of the taking of illicit drugs, and now they're a wreck. And you go, come on, man. Come on, man. No, just look, the movie redeems it, it's too late. He's a wreck, right? And it's, what was the point? You wanted to watch the movie. You didn't take him to it for him. You took, it, took him to it for you. You wanted to enjoy it. So weeks later, he's, he's not sleeping. His conscience is offended. He's wondering, you know, maybe he even he's, he's tempted again to indulge. You're sleeping just fine. You see him, he's got dark bags under his eyes. What's wrong with you, man? And he hadn't been able to sleep. He's a wreck. You've destroyed him. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what Paul's talking about. You've wrecked him. He's not destroyed and that his salvation is lost. Such a thing cannot be. If we are in Christ, nothing can take us out of his hand, John 10, 28. He would sooner allow us to die physically than to allow us to blaspheme, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. So what is this destruction? It's that spiritual turmoil he's been thrown into. His conscience condemns him. He's drowning so that you could enjoy the good things. So you're not thinking of others here, are you? This is the situation that Paul is painting for us. That's the basic idea. Don't put a stumbling block by your liberty. Don't persuade and wreck someone else's peace. Third aspect of this, don't destroy the work of God, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't destroy the work of God. What is the work of God? Is it a beverage with a clear conscience? Is the work of God listening to Sting or Billy Joel without moral quandary? Is the work of God ladies being able to wear pants instead of having to wear long skirts? Is that the work of God? No, the work of God is the rescue of sinners from hell. Would you prioritize your liberty over the gospel? If so, you misunderstand liberty in Christ altogether. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue, that's an active present verb. That means you do it in an ongoing manner, again and again and again and again. You pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Pursue what makes for peace, peace among the brethren, not strife. Not only that, but enjoy the, if you have liberty, enjoy it in the privacy of your own home. Look at verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. What's he talking about? He's talking about not sharing the gospel? Is that what Paul's saying? The faith you have, you have a Bible, the faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Is he saying, hide your lamp under a bushel? No, (laughs) right? 
Is he saying, don't share the gospel? Don't share your faith. The faith you have, keep between you and God. You got your faith, I got my faith. You keep quiet, I'll keep quiet, and we'll all just burn and go to hell. Is that what Paul is saying? No, right? Well, how do we know what he means when he says, the faith you have, keep between yourself and God? Context. What's this all about? Liberty. So what does this mean, the faith you have, keep between yourself and God? It means enjoy your liberties in the privacy of your own home. Restrain your behavior when you're among the weaker, and so doing, you promote peace so that the gospel of love and unity is on display to a watching world. Through what? Our love for one another. Sunday school this morning, right? The world will say, look how they accommodate each other. Look how unselfish they are. Look how peaceful they are. This is an appealing tool in God's hands and this is one of the ways that God uses us flawed instruments to accomplish his sovereign purpose to redeem his elect. So, enjoy your liberties at home. You don't have to enjoy them every moment of the day or else it's not a liberty, it's a slavery anyway. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Well, we're running out of time rapidly. So, number one, the burden. Number two, briefly, I mean that. Where the, where the burden lies? Where the burden lies? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, please. Just a handful of pages over to the right. 1 Corinthians 8. This is the burden. Build each other up. Don't tear each other down. Where does the burden lie? Let's read together beginning in verse 4 of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol is of no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are for whom we exist And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, whom are all things, and through him we exist. However, verse 7, not all possess this knowledge. Wait, what? However, not all possess this knowledge. What knowledge? The the knowledge that an idol is nothing. So food offered to an idol is meaningless. It's irrelevant. Not everyone understands this, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as, is, as really offered to an idol. They eat it as if it, and that is something, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, verse 8. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do eat. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow cause, become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10, 4. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if the conscience is weak? What does that mean? It means Paul says you can even go eat in the idol's temple. Why? Because an idol is nothing. An idol's temple is just a building. But all kinds of religious stuff is happening. All all kinds of nothingness is happening. Because an idol is nothing. There's only one God. You You can bow down and worship whatever you want. It means nothing. The only worship that is true is the worship of the one true God. But he says there, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to an idols. Right? To, so, and, well, verse 11. And, by so, and so, by your knowledge, this weak person is, again, destroyed. 
the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago in this matter of what's clean and unclean and, and what you can do and can't do and, and that, that if, if your conscience condemns you, is it really sin when it's not sin? And I said, yeah, it's sin right here. You sin against Christ in these matters. Not because you ate, but because you ate in a manner that flaunts your liberty and cause your brother to stumble. You cause him to be set into spiritual turmoil. You're sinning against your brother. You're sinning against the Lord. Therefore, Paul says in verse 13 at the end, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So, Where does the burden lie? Well, it lies with the strong. It's not complicated. John Brown says this, there is a great difference between Christian liberty and the use of Christian liberty. Christian liberty is internal. It belongs to the mind and conscience, but it is external when it belongs to conduct and has reference to man. We should be willing to die for the maintenance of our liberty, but many a consideration should induce us to forego the practical assertion or display of our liberty. In simple terms, what does it mean? It's one thing to have liberty. It's another thing to exercise it. It's possession versus practice. Two sides of the same coin. We possess the freedom. In fact, we are stern about fighting the temptation to add to grace a list of non-moral things that are off limits. This would add to grace and undermine the grace gift, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so we are stern about protecting what is free in Christ. And don't you dare add to the grace of Christ. Don't you dare defile the cross of Jesus by adding to it a list of do's and don'ts on things that are not moral as defined by the New Testament. I will go to the mat to stop you. It doesn't mean I have to practice everything. Right? You see the difference? We don't have to practice them. In fact, to do so with no regard for others' sensibilities violates the law of love. The more mature you are in your faith, the more this burden falls on you to both live a life of purity and simultaneously be aware of your brother, know his weaknesses, be sensitive to those weaknesses, so that in time, by your initial sensitivity, you might help him overcome needless burdens. You're not going to do it right away you got to first sacrifice some of your freedom for his sake. Well, that leads us to the last point here. Back to Romans 14, number three, how and why the burden is enforced. So you have this burden to promote unity, to restrain liberty for the sake of unity and love, the, the primary brunt of that burden falls on the strong, the mature. How and why, though, is the burden enforced? Well, the first part is easy. How is the burden? How is this to be enforced? It's to be enforced personally. So that means 
you enforce this upon yourself. Not like a cult with a list of do's and don'ts. You're to work this out personally and determine for yourself your responsibility to your brother and your sister in the faith. What you should and should not exercise in their presence. What you should and should not promote. What you should and should not indulge. And that's what's been so encouraging. I've heard more in the past few weeks about after-sermon conversations than I have in the last two years. You keep telling me, texting me, asking me about these matters. I keep hearing it. Dinner conversations at home. Discipleship group conversations during the week. This is how the fine details of this are supposed to be enforced. Personally, on the personal level. So to figure it out. There's a look across the aisle at the person sitting next to you, the person who is 30 years your senior or 30 years your younger, and you who are strong are supposed to figure this out. What are they struggling with? What might cause them to stumble? I'm to be sensitive to them. You're to figure it out. I could offer a list of dictates. I could say, look, I'll make it clear. I'll just make it really easy for everybody, okay? Okay? This musical artist is acceptable. This musical artist is unacceptable. If it's on this particular record label, okay. This record label, off limits. This entertainment is okay. This entertainment is not. This Broadway play is a yes. This Broadway play is a no. And now all of you just live by my list of do's and don'ts. That would be simpler, wouldn't it? And you know what? Congratulations, we're no longer a church. We're a cult. That's how cults work. They take non-moral preferences and they make them absolutes. They make them contingencies upon the grace gift of Christ. Teaching as doctrines the traditions of men, Jesus said. I can't teach this from a posture of fear that if you're permitted to exercise your liberties that you might go out of bounds. I can't teach this as if my convictions are the standard. There will be disparity in the church on matters of non-moral preference. The burden is to maintain unity, promote peace, and the more mature you are, the more responsibility you have to sacrifice for the sake of the younger. It's as simple as that, friends. That's the how. Let's check out the why just briefly in closing. This is how it's supposed to be enforced. Why? Why would we do this? This sounds like a lot of work. You know, analyzing this and analyzing that and what might be and what might not be. Making sure I delineate moral from non-moral preference and this guy and that guy and my friend and this guy and did I say, should I have not said that? Man, this is just too much effort. It's just too much work. Okay, I just want to come to church, sing a couple of songs, you know, hear about how Jesus loves me a bunch because I'm super cool, and go home. Right, all of this stuff is way too, it's too much. Mental gymnastics, I got deals to settle, sales to make, kids to raise. And you're saying I've got a burden, I've got a backpack worth of analyzation to do for the sake of my brother and my sister in the church. Well, There's reasons why. Number one, love, not the gospel, but love is violated. 
If it were a matter of gospel integrity, this activity or that activity, Paul would insist forcefully on uniform application. That isn't the case. However, love is violated when we insist on my right to a particular freedom. Look at this list of imperative restrictions. Just one chapter back, chapter 13, 13 through 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Okay? Not this, not this, not this. You want to be a Christian? You, you do not do these things. Right? When it's clear, Paul does not hesitate to say, no. You cannot be a Christian and... The two things are irreconcilable. Uh, Turn back one more chapter, Romans 12, verse 9. I'm going to read this quickly. Let love be genuine, abhor what's evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not, look, verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay it says the Lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he's thirsty give him something to drink for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good we could do this in the whole New Testament when it's clear when there's a clear moral imperative This is how the Christian lives. This is what the Christian does not participate in. Paul is not afraid to say it. And then he turns the page, and on a whole host of non-moral things, he says, you guys got to work this out. You got to work it out. Because if I make non-moral things into moral things, we become a cult. Grace is undermined. The cross is defamed. But if you don't work it out, if you don't put in the time and the effort, love is violated. So work it out. I remember going to a Messianic Jewish service once. Messianic Jews are Jews who believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So they're Christian Jews. But, but they hold very firm to their traditions. And in many ways, it's quite beautiful. But before I went into this Messianic Jewish service, I was told by my friend who invited me, uh, you need to wear the, the thing, the yarmulke thing. They'll have some for you at the front door, no big deal, but you gotta wear it to go in. Well, that's dumb, but okay, <laughs> right? I felt so silly wearing a little, like, give me a real hat. I mean, I'll, put on a, I'll wear a baseball cap. Nope, the little thing, okay. He said, and don't put your Bible down. I said, what do you mean? Don't put it in your seat. Don't put it in the floor. There's no tables or chairs. It's just, or there's, there's no tables or like, but there's, there's, there's nowhere to put your Bible, but don't you dare sit it down. They'll be terribly offended. How many of you have your Bible in the seat next to you? Just come on. Yeah. <gasps> How dare you? 
Now, so, so I put the thing on, and I held my Bible in my hand, you know. I love my Jewish brothers in Christ enough in that moment to comply. Right? It was silly. Silly to wear this little thing. It was silly to get hung up about putting your Bible in the seat next to you. This is silly. We're being silly. Treating the word of God with reverence is about honoring its content, obeying its dictates, reading it, meditating on it. This paper copy will wear out, break down. The second law of thermodynamics, everything is decaying. It is slowly breaking down, including this copy of God's word. All material things are slowly decaying. Now, if you, if you reverence the words of God, you'll probably treat your personal copy with a sense of pride and care. But to make it a law about how you hold it, set it down, don't do so, that's nonsensical. But you know what? I complied. I'm not patting myself on the back. It's just helpful. I, I complied. And do you know why? Because I can. It's as simple as that. Their weak conscience would be defiled if I don't wear the little hat or if I put my Bible down. They can't get over that. I can wear it and hold it. I can, and so I do. You see? And the law of love restrains our liberty without bitterness. If I were to be calloused to those sensibilities, I would never be able to get to know those people. I would never be able to build relationship with them. I would drive a wedge in between the two of us before any of those things could happen. You see? Love, love, friends, is violated. However, secondly, the cross has diminished. Why would we do this? Why would we um, like go through all this rigmarole? Well, because if we don't, the cross is diminished. The cross is diminished when something so trivial causes the conscience of a fellow believer to be wounded. When Paul says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died, he is pointing our attention to the cross to the blood of Jesus, to his sacrifice. It's all coming back to the cross again and again and again. It's a silly little bracelet thing from my childhood. What would Jesus do? It was, it was a dumb little cliche, but it's good, right? Because why? Because it's constantly pointing our attention back to the cross. We don't want to do anything that diminishes the cross. The precious blood was shed as much to redeem your weaker brother as it was to redeem you. To knowingly offend his conscience is to spit on the cross. Look at what he gave and give. Can you? Then do. A third reason why is because liberty is good, but reputation is better. Liberty is good, but reputation is better. While the liberty secured by grace are good, the fame and reputation of Jesus is more important. John, John MacArthur says, it's possible to abuse, it is possible to so abuse our liberty among ourselves that we create such conflict between the weak and the strong that the world in general is turned off to Christianity because of what they see. Look with me again at verse 16, chapter 14. So then, so, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of 
as evil. Look at verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and what? Approved by men. We're talking about the reputation of our Savior here. Instead of peering into the church and finding conflict and strife and a never-ending list of denominational divisions, the unredeemed should find, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness. That's what they should find first. Righteousness, that's holy living, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. These things cannot be a point of disapproval. They can find no fault in our purity, our selflessness, our unity, and our joy. But what have we heard for so many decades now from those who are far from the church? Where they say, I have enough drama, I have enough division, I have enough strife and angst in my life. Why would I go to church and have some more? Right? Why would I come to church and enjoy some more? Now, the church has missed this grossly, and the reputation of our Savior has taken the brunt of it. And so we go back to the very beginning. Let us commit, right? We can't correct, but we can commit here to not promote further division on the exercise of non-moral preferences. I'll leave you with this quote for now, and we'll move on to the third principle next week in chapter 15. I appreciate this very much, and I think uh, it'd be good for us to meditate on as we leave. William Barclay. It is a Christian duty to think of everything, not as it affects ourselves only, but also as it affects others. That's good. It is a Christian duty to think of everything, not as it affects ourselves only, but also as it affects others. I think that's a good word to end on. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word and for our time together in it. May you watch over us and keep us as we attempt, uh, to the best of our ability, to put these things into practice week over week as we uh, spend time in your word and gain a little bit of clarity, a little bit more this week than we had last week, hopefully, and a whole lot of humility in practice. Now help us, for we need your help again, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, friends.